actually lived it. I lived in an obese body for 52 years and in a slender one for eight years, which I much prefer by the way, but I think I really understand what it takes to keep the weight off. And that's a part of the conversation that nobody really wants to hear. I, I think the truth about weight loss is that it's simple, but it's not easy. And what I mean by that, if you, know, if you just take a really broad like look with the lens, it's like, okay, well, if you consume less calories, then you burn, you'll lose weight. Yeah, but how you do it makes a big difference to whether or not you're going to be able to maintain that weight loss. Because I would argue that anybody that has ever wanted to lose weight has lost weight at some point in their life. Yet 98% of people that have ever lost weight have gained it all back. It's usually within two years. And generally, they gain more weight than where they started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and it is always a pleasure bringing guests onto our show that can share their expertise, their knowledge, their direct experience with using food as medicine, with healing the body, with helping others heal the body. Now, what do I mean when I say using food as medicine? The number one question I get asked in every interview, every media interview that I do, every workshop is, what is real food? So it's really important for people to <clears throat> start to understand what real food is. Because we have been consuming a lot of ingredients that are assembled together to make you think that you're eating real food. So to summarize it, what I really want to say is that if you have a chronic disease, and I know all of you out there that are listening to this show, you if you aren't already suffering from a chronic illness, then you know somebody in your immediate family that has either died from a chronic disease like heart disease or type 2 diabetes or autoimmune disorders that have ravaged the body or any type of mental health illness as well, such as depression, anxiety attacks, panic attacks. You know somebody who is suffering from this or who you've lost somebody to one of these illnesses. Now, cancer as well is a chronic disease and cancer affects one in two North Americans now. That means one in two North Americans will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. And I know that that is shocking to many of you. Because the other question that I get asked all the time is, why me? How did this happen to me? And I'm here to tell you how it happened to you. You are living in a world right now, you've been born into a world where there's over 80,000 chemicals that are floating through our air, our water, our soil, our food systems, our homes, our workplaces that are not healthy for our bodies. And what I mean when I say not healthy for our bodies, yes, for sure, one individual chemical might be tested and we can take that into our systems and our systems will break it down and it won't necessarily be harmful. But what happens when we combine 80,000 different chemicals, many of which are not tested, many of which get approved very, very quickly without profound testing or long-term testing done? So when you take the accumulation of all of those chemicals in our environment, plus you connect it with a 
food, a diet system, and eating lifestyle that it's based on refined and processed foods. So that's eating foods, for example, that are chips made of chip, chickpea flour. So for you, those of you that are really healthy and health conscious, you might be, be you might be buying products off the shelf that come in a package or a box or a bag, and it's made out of refined processed foods like flowers and other uh, preserved ingredients. So that's super processed food versus if you were to go to the local farmer's market and buy an apple instead of a fruit roll-up, or you would buy chickpeas from the grocery store that are dried and you boil them and turn that into hummus versus going out and buying the packaged hummus or the chickpea or garbanzo bean flour chips, which are super processed. So it's important for people to understand that the way humans live for a very long time, disease-free is by eating an abundance of nutrients that come in their whole food forms. Now, if you're eating a lot of whole foods, but you have a diet that's quite extensive in animal-based products, and dairy and eggs. Well, the studies have been coming out for over a hundred years. They continue to come out that show that a diet that's heavy in animal-based products or a diet that also, uh, or, is a, or is a diet that contributes to um, the epidemic rates of chronic disease that we see now. So we have one in four people living with at least one chronic degenerative disease. For most of my clients, they have multiple chronic degenerative diseases. So they suffer from ongoing migraines and PMS and infertility and heart disease and diabetes and, you know, and, and even cancers of multiple different types. So to be able to live a life of real food, it means really changing your behavior, your shopping behaviors, your eating behaviors, your food preparation behaviors, and more and more people are doing the opposite of that. They are actually going out, they're eating processed foods, they're eating fast foods. Fast food industry has grown tremendously over the last 50 years. And we are seeing more and more people suffer from obesity, suffer from the chronic diseases that also accompany that lifestyle of eating out all the time. So we like to bring stories onto our podcast to show that, you know what? It's never too late to change your diet. It's never too late to make the lifestyle changes, for example, moving your body as well. And it doesn't have to be vigorous exercise. It can actually just be walking every single day. It can be moving your body and stretching and doing yoga and jumping up and down and doing skip rope or dancing or fixing a fence in your backyard as opposed to hiring somebody to do it for you. So when we look at exercise, when we look at sleep, when we look at you know reducing your alcohol consumption, when we look at eliminating um, you know certain things out of our lifestyle that are not healthy, ultimately one one of the biggest things that you can do for yourself to tackle the chronic disease epidemic, to tackle the chronic diseases that are in your immediate family, it's really to look at diet because diet we know is responsible for at least 90 to 95% of your chronic diseases, okay? The chronic illness that you might be suffering from. And the way we know that is that number one, the long-term population studies show that this is true. The clinical trials show that this is true. And also the anecdotal stories 
show that this is true. Now, we don't want to rely solely on anecdotal stories, but we have to look at those case studies individually and we have to ask why. Why did that person change their diet, but also their disease symptoms went away? And this is the work that I do with my clients. I use the science, the evidence-based medicine around nutrition, teach that to my clients. My clients make the behavior changes and we support them with that. And then all of a sudden, they are disease-free. They're symptom-free. Their doctors are canceling their surgery. Their doctors are taking them off their medications. They no longer are living with the pain, the anxiety, the shame, the um, lack of exhaustion, or sorry, lack of energy and extreme exhaustion that they were living with, and they no longer have the disease. Now, some people would say, well, the disease is just lurking right around the corner. And that's not the case with my clients, because when my clients make these lifestyle changes, they are lifestyle changes. Once they learn what real food is, it's very hard to go back to eating fake, processed, ultra-processed, refined foods. Now, you're not going to get there unless you try it. And what I love about the guest that we have on today's show, Chef AJ, is that she is a 60-year-old woman who really found the answers, really found the truth that applied to her when she was 52, so only eight years ago, even though she has been eating plant-based for over 40 years. So there's many definitions around what is plant-based, what is whole food, what is veganism, what is vegetarianism, what it, you know, all of these different terms that we have. And ultimately what Chef AJ done is looked at... Um, looked at food from the perspective that it can be ultra enjoyable, but it can also be medicine. And so I want to welcome Chef AJ to our podcast because she is somebody I have been following for years. She has struggled with obesity. She has struggled with eating disorder. She has struggled with illness. She has struggled with so many different things. But what I love about her is that she's never stopped trying to find the answer. She has never stopped trying to find what works for her body. She has never stopped putting one foot in front of the other. And now she is legendary in what she does because she's out there helping other people learn about her journey and learn about the truth behind food, real food, and food as medicine. So to dive into who Chef AJ is, you know, she's been devoted to a plant-based diet for over 43 years. She is the host of a television series called Healthy Living, so you can follow her there, which airs on Foodie TV. She is a chef, a culinary instructor, and a professional speaker. She is the author of an incredible book that I got years ago called Unprocessed, How to Achieve Vibrant Health in Your Ideal weight. So she is a master weight loss expert as well. And this book chronicles her journey from an obese junk food, vegan faced diet with a diagnosis of precancerous polyps to learning how to create foods that nourish and heal the body. Her latest best-selling book, The Secrets to Ultimate Weight Loss, A Revolutionary Approach to Conquer Cravings, Overcome Food Addiction and Lose Weight Without Ever Going Hungry. That's such a great title for her book. It has received, received glowing endorsements by many, many professional scientists and luminaries in the plant-based movement. So on today's show, we are going to discuss so many topics. For example, why elimination diets do not work, 
why you need to let go of thinking that genetics is your loaded gun when in fact it is not. It is the lifestyle that pulls the trigger, as Chef AJ says. You are going to learn about why these diseases are directly linked to your gut health. Most of these diseases are all gut diseases. And you're going to learn about what it means to be a plant-based chef in today's world, which means you don't have to be a designated culinary chef, but you are a chef every single day that you enter your kitchen and go to your fridge and open up your cupboards and pull out those ingredients. So it's important to know and to redefine the kind of chef that you're going to be for your family and for your children, for your friends and your community. So I love the chef AJ. AJ always has a sweet tooth as well. And with her having been a pastry chef as well, she now makes desserts only using the best of the best ingredients. So I promise you, you're not going to have to give up your sweet tooth as well um, if you decide to walk the same path that chef AJ has walked. You can eat nothing but fruit if you wanted, because fruit is a whole food. So you don't have to give up eating sugars. You don't have to give up eating, you know, other foods that trigger those beautiful cravings that you have, because you can meet all of your needs with a plant-based whole food diet. Chef AJ also talks about not only how to lose weight, but what it takes to keep the weight off. Because as you know, 99% of people that lose weight will gain it back plus more in the first year um, of you know, stopping their diet. So that's important as well. And who wants to diet? Diet, diets are, I'm going to say they're gross for the most part because they're so restrictive. So wouldn't it be nice to know that you can go to your cupboard in your fridge and open up those doors and eat anything that you want in there without fearing gaining weight, without fearing uh, being restricted. So that's what I love about everything we're going to be talking about today on this podcast with Chef AJ. Not only that, she's going to dive into the tips and tricks to be able to be super efficient in your kitchen as well, and so much more. Now, let's dive into this podcast and get to know Chef AJ, get to know her world so that you can start taking the steps today to turn your health around, to lose weight, to get energy, and to feel the most amazing, optimal version of yourself. You can feel that way and you can be that way. So welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast with our guest, Chef AJ. We'll see you at the end of the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I am your host, Nicolette Richet, and I am over the moon thrilled to have Chef AJ on our podcast today. Welcome, Chef AJ. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Such a pleasure because as we were chatting about in the pre um, pre podcast uh, recording session here, I had mentioned that I'd heard oh, I, I've been following you for years and I'd seen many of your interviews and I had read your books and, but it was actually on the Ritual podcast where you really went in and described in detail, you know, what it was that was the turning point for your health. And for me, I teach my clients the Gerson therapy and there was such an alignment between the two. And I was like, she's describing the Gerson therapy um, that helped you really make that transformation. But before we dive into that, I want to really go back. I'm going to drive people to some of the previous interviews and podcasts that you have done, particularly the one with Ritual, because it does go through your history. But if you can 
recap, you know, what that was like growing up in your relationship to food. Um, and, you know, you're 60 years old, so you can also talk about it like within the context of, you know, 50 years ago. Exactly. That was a long time ago. Yeah, I just remember growing up, I loved dessert. And it's funny because I actually became a pastry chef for about five years. And I didn't realize there was such a thing as food addiction. And I do know now that me as a pastry chef is like about as much sense as having you know, the fox guard, the proverbial hen house, but I loved everything sweet. And I, I, I didn't realize that there was an addictive component growing up because everybody ate that stuff. You know, processed food was very prevalent in the 60s and 70s. You know, I remember every time a new commercial came on television, and by the way, Saturday morning when I was watching cartoons, that's when they all came on. I said to my mom, I want that. Look, Tang, Space Food Sticks, Pop-Tarts, all these things. I mean, they look delicious, and they were delicious. I had no idea they weren't food. But I was fat from the age of five, or at least as long as I can remember. I don't remember one through five very much, so I I can't really tell you what I weighed. But I knew I was fat because everybody around me wasn't. This was in the 60s, right? It's different now when at least one out of every three children under the age of 18 is overweight or obese. But back then, it was about one in 40. And in every classroom, that was me. And luckily, I was very outgoing. I was funny. I didn't really get teased or brutally uh, bullied because of it. But I knew that I was different because like when you're the only one that doesn't get asked to your senior prom, you figured there must be a reason. My mom was morbidly obese. My dad was of normal weight. So I I was predisposed to obesity, at least on one side of the family. But I know now from people like Dr. Colin Campbell, who's been on your show, that the genetics really just loads the gun. It's the lifestyle that pulls the trigger and the diet. And we didn't eat terribly unhealthy. I don't want to make it sound like that's all my mom gave me. Not at all. She was an excellent cook. We had, you know, regular dinners where was a, you know, some piece of animal protein, there was some starch, there was some vegetables, there was salad. The thing was, is all I wanted was dessert. That's all I remember. And my dad was like, eat what you want, but I take what you want, but eat what you take. And so I had to finish my plate to get dessert. So I was basically trained to overeat from the time I was little because all I wanted was a dessert. I don't know why when I was very little, like four, my mom, she drank coffee every morning with cream and sugar and she let me taste it. And boy, I was hooked immediately. Sugar, caffeine, dairy, all those things. And so, you know, I I just had, I had a real sweet tooth and my mom being a good cook, you know, she would make rich desserts like chocolate fudge cake and things like that. And, you know, that's just all I ever wanted to eat. And, And even things that were somewhat healthy, it seemed like my mom could always make more decadent. So for example, even if we had frozen waffles on a Sunday, you know, with margarine, you didn't have butter, butter wasn't good for you, you know, but we had margarine and syrup. She would put a, a Nestle's a semi-sweet morsel in every square, or if she made pancakes, they were chocolate chip pancakes. So, you know, I, I, real, I didn't realize that until looking back how, how strange my behavior was because nobody was really calling me on it, even though I was, obese, you know, I I had had um, some doctors pointed out to me, but they didn't exactly have the best bedside manner. And so I really wasn't open to listening to it. But that's all I ate was, was, was processed food. And even when I became vegan for the first 26 years, that's all I ate was processed food. And and I don't know why we call it processed food because it's not food. It's, it's processed, it's refined, but it's definitely not food. And 
you know, honestly, if it wasn't for my, my health challenge, I probably would be on the same path. I would probably still be obese. I might actually have full-blown colon cancer instead of just the beginning of it. So, you know, it, that, that I, I love dessert. What can I tell you? And I still love it, but it's way, it's, the components are way different now. It's no longer sugar and flour and oil and salt. It's things like fruit, maybe with oats and, you know, and pumpkin puree, things like that. So I, I still manage to satisfy my sweet tooth, but now it's with the fruit, the whole fruit, and nothing but the whole fruit. I love that. Um, and, and it's so important to make that distinction because I remember when Canada was doing redoing the health food guide and we had government come through all the communities and do consulting with the community about the food guide. And um, one of the one of the politicians, she had stood up and said, you know, her daughter has type one diabetes. And so, of course, they gather all the family members around and they have to go to meetings to teach them how to feed their children when they discover they have type one diabetes. And so important to say that it is the apple, for example, and not an apple fruit roll up because there were parents in there that one of them actually had their daughter taken away um, by social services because she couldn't wrap her head around the fact that refined processed foods so high in sugars was not okay for her daughter versus the apple, eat that whole apple and nothing but the apple. And so it really is a serious issue when we live in a time where people don't understand that whole grain Cheerios that maybe have turmeric are not food, right? Yeah. And it's better to eat the whole grain. So at the time when you were young, like where your parents, they were obviously aware that, you know, you had challenges with your weight as well. Now, were they wanting to put you on diets or were they did it, what was their relationship to your weight? You know, actually, it's funny because my father abandoned us when I was pretty young. So he, his, he, he didn't really have much input. He was the one that was actually normal weight, although he did not eat healthy. He ate salami and, and all kinds of things. You know, he had heart disease and he had heart attacks before I was even born. But my mom struggled with her weight so much. She was always on a diet. She was either on Weight Watchers or take off pounds sensibly or getting injections with uh, the urine from pregnant women. Uh, you know, uh, she did that. She was always dieting, but she never actually asked me to join her in her dieting efforts because compared to her, I was, I was, you know, she was morbidly obese. I was just regular obese. Right. Right. And what was that like for you being a, you know, that one in 40 child in the classroom? Well, you know, in some ways, you know, I always look at things and I say, it made me, it made me stronger for sure. And it made me funnier. I mean, I have, I do stand up still today because when it, it, the thing is, is if you make fun of yourself first, they can't make fun of you. So it did help me learn some skills and develop, I think, some personality traits that I might not have developed if I was, you know, the, the skinny, pretty girl. But what was really hard was fall because every fall I'd have to buy new clothes. And it wasn't because I got taller, it was because I got fatter. And I can't remember what grade it was. I wanna say it was like first or second when my mom took me to get you know new clothes for school and I could no longer fit into the children's section. Like there was nothing to fit me. And the lady said to me, she goes, you know, if you get any fatter, you're gonna to have to shop at Lane Giants. Lane Giants, she was making a derogatory remark about a store for plus size women called Lane Bryant's. And that, I mean, it's just like, that hurt, you know? And, what, what, and I remember another thing is uh, when I was six years old, 
doctors still made house calls in 1966. And my grandfather actually was a medical doctor and he normally would have made the house call, but he was out of town and I had 105 fever. And I mean, I, I remember, the, it's funny, I remember this like it was yesterday. And uh, he, so my mother called the doctor of my cousin, Betsy, who was four years older, but very, very petite. And I'm sitting there under the covers and I'm laying there and I'm shivering. And this, I remember his name. I'm sure he's not alive because I'd love to really give it to him. His name was Dr. Charles Goldenberg. And so he opens the covers up to examine me and he shrieks. He goes, oh my God, her leg is the size of Betsy. And so, you know, when you're six, it kind of hurts your feelings, those things. So, so those were the two that I remember most. And these weren't from like friends or family. I don't, I don't really remember my friends and family being really mean to me, but I do remember my brothers and they were not, and believe it or not, even though brothers, older brothers can be really mean, they weren't saying this in a mean way, but they were saying it in a warning way. They're saying, look, we want to let you know, guys do not date fat girls. Now, now with, 70% of the population overweight or obese, most guys, I mean, somebody is, but, but, in, yeah. but they were right back then they didn't. Right. And so nutrition wasn't new back then. You know, we had Dr. T. Colin Campbell out there and Dr. Caldwell Ezelstin, and we had practitioners who were promoting plant-based whole food as medicine. Was there anybody in your family or friend group or anybody who had approached your family and, and, you know, do you ever remember that? Because I'm so curious about, you know, whether there had ever been any hints towards this that eventually no, I, brought I you. Don't, I don't think so, because my mother worked for my uncle, who was also a doctor, the son of my grandfather, the doctor. My uncle was overweight. My grandfather was overweight. My grandmother was overweight, maybe even obese. So it's like everybody was. We what I thought was, this is just my lot in life. You know, everybody's fat. This is, I'm going to be fat. They're fat. And the thing was, it wasn't just that everybody was overweight. They were also sick, heart disease, diabetes, cancer. So really, I'm going to be honest. It wasn't until I was 43 years old. That was 17 years ago when I went to the Optimum Health Institute, because I had those precancerous polyps that I ever heard anyone, let alone someone in the health arena say, what you eat has a profound effect on your health, duh. Because even doctors that I would kind of say, like remember in my 20s, remember my, I had a, what I thought was a very good internal medicine doctor. I said, you know, I think I'm a, a, addicted to sugar. I can't stop eating it all. You can't be addicted to sugar as he was drinking his tab or Diet Coke, you know? So I, I think a lot of times you can't blame the doctors. They didn't really get yeah. much nutrition in medical school. And, and a lot of them were struggling themselves. I remember, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when doctors smoked. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. And it's, and it's so true. And I remember those ads specifically where it was doctors promoting cigarette smoking. And so, and they were promoting eating unhealthy foods and all the packaged processed uh, non-foods that are out there. So then Let's go into your teens then. And then what was your relationship with food in your teens? Well, when I got close to high school, you know, I, you, you could see what was going on around you and that, you know, who became a cheerleader and who got boyfriends and stuff. So I went on my first diet because of a comment, my uncle who is now deceased, may he rest in peace because I don't want to really hurt his feelings for saying this because I know, I know on some level he was trying to be helpful. But I remember when I was about 11, when I came from Chicago to live with my aunt and uncle for a period of time while my parents stayed in, the, in Chicago to try to sell the house. And I, I had never really stepped on a scale because like, you know, most, I mean, we just didn't have a scale in Chicago. And, but he did because he was a doctor. 
And I don't know how tall I was at the age of 11, but I, I weighed 160 pounds, which is definitely obese because I couldn't have been maybe more than five feet tall. And I didn't want to get weighed, but I had to, in order to go to the school, like I had to have like a physical, like, and, and he had to sign the paper as my legal guardian. And I didn't, I, I just, there was a, like, I was like the dog, the proverbial dog. When I take my dog to the vet and the vet says, well, we need to take her to the back room. And then the dog puts all four paws down, like, no, please don't take me there. That was how it was. It was like, no, I don't want to get on the scale. I don't want to get on the scale. And my uncle said to me, he goes, you know, for every pound you weigh less, I don't know how he knew I weighed 160. He must have seen enough patients. He goes, for every pound you weigh less than 160, I'll give a dollar to your favorite charity. And I remember stepping on a scale and I weighed 160. And I knew that number was too high for somebody my age and my weight. So I was a little bit devastated. And um, I didn't do anything about it yet, but I remember it was Later on, when I was with my uncle, we were in a restaurant, some kind of a buffet restaurant. It's funny how like, you know, I don't think about these things till I'm being asked, but it's like, it's as if they were yesterday. I can recall them. I don't remember the name of the restaurant and where we were, but it was a kind of a restaurant where you, you know, you help yourself to a breakfast buffet. And there was this, this very, very large woman there and she was wearing the kind of dress that my mom always wore that we called them moo-moos, M-U-U-M-U-U. Mm-hmm. They were like, fat lady dresses, right? It wasn't like the stylish clothes you could get at Lane Bryan. It was like a shift. It was just, you know, like a tent, right? And she was, you know, piling on all kinds of, you know, you know, bacon and pancakes and all things on her, her breakfast. And, you know, and I remember my uncle saying, you know, if you keep eating like that, you're going to have to wear one of those dresses. And it was like, Okay. So I, you know, that was like sling number two, right? And then three times a charm when one day he finally said to me, he goes, you know, you could probably go a whole week without eating and it wouldn't hurt you one bit. And that was it. And so that was the beginning of my anorexic years where I literally did not eat. I mean, I drank water, you know, I mean, I, 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 knew, I knew you had to do that. And I think I chewed sugarless gum without eating. And that started my discordant eating, which lasted till probably, yeah, I mean, some would say it's, it's still that way, but, but really not to the degree where I'm restricting it all. Uh, till till I was like 25. Yeah. So that was, that was the start of three, three, three times. It was like three okay. times a charm. Yeah. 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 And that third way, I mean, and it happens all the time. I remember growing up and, you know, just my, especially my uncles, it seemed that the men in the family would just like throw comments about, you know, female body types and parts and, and all of that as though it was nothing. And, you know, you know, saying like, Hey, lard ass or whatever it was like, just, and, you know, and I don't know, the time it was maybe an era right where people thought that you can do that people now know I mean we're far more conscious about you know the way words affect people for sure and using nonviolent communication but I mean it still goes on in many 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 families well I think today. I think there's a whole I think it maybe is getting better with the me too movement but I think there's a whole culture of it's okay to talk about women body parts like you wouldn't yeah. do that with men but like Never. you know think about it you know it's just that I think that's just the way like because women like in some places are still property and I think you know look even remember that thing with the Supreme Court justice a long time ago I mean I think there's this mindset that and I don't want to get political here but that it's okay to either shame or even comment positively on a woman's body parts where you really yeah. wouldn't do that to a man Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it really needs to come to an end. And, and if you do want to, from a health perspective, I mean, there's always a way that you can do it. That is in a loving, compassionate, empathetic, you know, like, what do you need? Let me help you kind of way, as opposed to, 
yeah, the way it's been done. So then did you know about eating disorders when you decided to stop eating? I did not know about them until I was 19 years old when I saw a television program about a girl that was anorexic and I could relate to it. And by then I was so far gone that I did have to be hospitalized for quite a while. And, and it's funny because my mom didn't want to uh, acknowledge it. And she, I remember she said, oh, you saw a television program and you got that in your head. No, but I really did have anorexia nervosa. And it was at a time where they didn't know very much about it. This was 1979. And it's funny because I remember reading, it's so funny how like life comes full circle because I remember reading a book and I think it was called Starving for Attention or something like that, written by Cherry Boone, who's the daughter of Pat Boone. And I was recently a presenter at Rancho La Puerta. And even though her sister, Debbie, who's like the real famous one was there, I was like, oh my God, your book was so helpful to me. Because back then, no, I mean, this was before Karen Carpenter either. Nobody had anorexia. Nobody knew how to treat it. And, and I'm sure the treatment methods got a lot better than when I was 19. Yeah. Did you end up going to a center? So you were hospitalized, but then after the hospitalization, did you go to a rehab center or anything I like didn't. that? They, they, you know, they, what they did, unfortunately, I was in, this is like, I hate talking about this, but I don't, if it'll help somebody, because yeah. they, they put you in a mental hospital. They did not put you, this is, this is what they had. The first mental hospital was in Philadelphia because I was, I was, a, I was a, what was I, a, I can't remember, I was a sophomore or junior at the University of Pennsylvania, and that's where I lived, and it was a state mental hospital, which means I was literally there with people that were murderers and rapists and arsonists, uh, you know, in this, and I'm, I mean, it was really, really scary, so then my family intervened, and my sister-in-law came, drove up from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia, put me on an airplane, and they put me in a private hospital in Los Angeles where I didn't have, you know, where I could sleep because I wasn't worried that some guy was going to, like, kill me in the middle of the night. So that was quite, a, quite an interesting experience. The hospital I was at, unfortunately, it wasn't for eating disorders. It was, a, you know, because they consider anorexia nervosa a mental disease, so they give you a psychiatrist and a treatment plan, which was basically you gain weight or we put a, a tube down your throat and we throw feed you. And the thing is, is I didn't want to get a tube down my throat. So I ate, but what did I eat? Not anything like I eat today, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes. I just ate processed crap, the stuff that I love that I grew up eating. And guess what? The weight came back on more quickly than it went off and then some. And this is the challenge. I recently had a client who, um, you know, 38 years old, and she had an eating disorder um, when she was in her early 20s. And she went to, I believe, I want to say it was in Palm Springs, Cal I can't remember where it was. Um, and I'll find out if it's even still there. And I hope it is because there she stayed for nine months, but they only fed her whole foods. And they taught her about these incredible, and this is still 18 years ago. And they taught her all about using real foods, unrefined foods, foods without preservatives or refined sugar and all of that. And so then she came out of there thriving and, you know, she gained her weight back, but then she was able to go for the next, you know, 18 years basically with just eating real clean food. And the thing though, that it was still so foreign to eat that way, plants, grains, vegetables, greens, all of that, that her family always assumed she still had an eating disorder because she refused to eat refined processed food. So it actually had the opposite effect on her life. 
that she was so fortunate to go to this one center that believed in real food, but then because she ate real food for the last 18 years, you know, which it's really only become pretty mainstream that that is okay to do that, that you're not eating like a bird or a rabbit, you know, when you choose that. So her family has maintained this idea that she still has an eating disorder, despite the fact she was actually taught at this really great institution and was able to overcome or, or work through her eating disorder. Um, and in your case, it was the opposite, you know, to have that processed food pretty much like shoved down your throat. Right. Yeah. They, that, yeah I, don't, I mean, it's not that they didn't have fruits and vegetables, but, you know, like they had these like rooms where you could get snacks anytime you want, 24 hours a day. And I remember they had these Entenmann cookies. I can still remember all the stuff that I don't eat anymore, but I used to love the Entenmann's cookies because they were soft and they had big chunks of chocolate chips. And, you know, I had unlimited access. Plus, I was really starving on a cellular level. I was so yeah. hungry from not eating. That place your, your client went to sounds amazing. And I agree with you that... I think people that eat a whole food plant-based diet or even that just eat a vegan diet often get attacked and are called orthorexic because they're doing something yeah. that is so bizarre to people that eat the way most Americans eat. And I think it's more bizarre the way Americans eat, which is 92% of their calories from animal products and processed food. Yeah. But that is what is considered normal because it is the norm. But it is, I'll tell you, it is not normal to eat that way. No, absolutely not. And you brought up a good point too when we were chatting just before we started recording, just about, um, you know, I know you're hosting this GI Health Summit uh, November 14th to the 27th? 22nd. 22nd. And, you know, and I love that you have discovered this relationship between the gastrointestinal tract and the brain, the gut brain axis. But, um, you know, how did that relate to when you were young? Like, as you learned about this relationship about the microbiome, you know, what do you remember from you being young and in your teens and throughout having an eating disorder around your yeah. gut? Well, yeah, I, I, you know, they're all saying, if I only knew then what I knew now, I, I always say that, you know, a lot I've known for what I've known for, which is maybe food addiction or weight loss. And one of the reasons I chose to host this summit is because another part of my life is that I've suffered from almost every GI disease from mouth to anus. I mean, nothing like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis mm -hmm. or celiacs, but just almost everything else from, you know, from reflux to, to hemorrhoids, to IBS, to, to, uh, what's, uh, to SIBO, to, uh, uh, ulcers, things like that. And I, I always had problems with my gut since I was four years old. And most of the time it was dismissed as being in my head. I mean, things have gotten a lot better now, but when I started to interview these experts, there was 39 of them, mostly medical doctors, mostly GI doctors. And I started learning about this thing called the gut brain access, how the stomach and the brain bi-directional communication talk to each other. And, and what I learned is it's not like you create the disease in your head. It's not like that. It is in your head, but it's in your gut. It's because they're talking to each other. So yeah. all these things that I suffered for, these mysterious ailments and bloating and all these things for years were exacerbated by the fact that I had these underlying issues of anxiety and things like that. And not to say they weren't real, like you don't get SIBO from being anxious. That was caused by food poisoning, but that I was literally making myself more sick by not 
taking control of my anxiety, my mental state, all the things I know now to do, which is eat better for my microbiome, exercise better for my microbiome, sleep better for my microbiome, control my stress and anxiety. And so it, it really wasn't until all this came together and I really started controlling my stress that my GI issues, it's, it's almost like they disappeared. Every now and then when I'm, when I'm really stressed, you know, I'll get like an inkling, but it's like, I, I basically consider myself cured. And I, I, I think the eating disorder definitely made all the stomach stuff worse because, you know, you can't treat your body that way and expect it to, to, to run optimally, you know, stuffing and, you know, I was bulimic too. That can't be good yeah. for your gut and yeah. starving can't be good for your gut and eating nothing but sugar for 43 years cannot be good for your gut. So I was not being very kind to my gut. And I realize now that health really does begin in the gut and what's good for the gut is good for your overall health. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, definitely the fact that, you know, when you say that you were four, you had these gastrointestinal issues that, I mean, and that contributes to the obesity. We have, you know, there was a period of time, which I think is still prevalent in a lot of physicians' minds that, you know, and a lot of individuals' minds that, well, if their mother was obese and father was obese and now they're obese and, you know, they'll say, well, there's a genetic link to that when we know that 97% of the time it's a lifestyle issue and it does start with that gut. So the gut is actually what contributes to the obesity, not the other way around. And that's something people need to understand, especially for the mental health side. I'll just throw out this one statistic that I think is so vital that people understand um, that we only just discovered recently that is, you know, 95% of the dopamine and the serotonin that our brain utilizes is created in by the bacteria in the large intestine. So if you're only eating refined processed foods, you're, you're not growing the healthy bacteria that are going to create that dopamine and serotonin. And therefore your brain is going to be in a constant state of like a vice basically, because it's not getting any of these beautiful hormones that it needs. And so I that just- that but I learned it very late. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, better late than never, I always say, because you are living proof that better late than never, right? Yes. And the fact that, and I just want to go back to the SIBO piece because I get asked this question all the time by my clients. They often come to me, they've been diagnosed with SIBO. And the first thing they say is, well, my doctor said, I'm going to have this for life. And are you, do you still battle SIBO? No, I don't. It went away. I mean, there's different different treatments. And on the summit, I, you know, I, I interview naturopaths and I mean, there's all kinds of different treatments, whether somebody takes antibiotics or no, I, I mean, it doesn't mean I won't get it again, but no, I don't have it at all. I mean, I do, I would say I still have the IBS a little bit, but it's always seems to be triggered by stress in my case, you know? Right. Yeah. And you're talking about when you say stress, because I often talk about it from food stress, environmental stress, emotional stress, but when you're saying that it's triggered by stress, that is the like the overwork, the the mental stress. It's really more like like more like in my case, it's anxiety. Like when okay. when, when something's like uh, <laughs> to give you an example, like yesterday I do a live show every day and like a half hour before the live show, the person whom I work with and we, we share a Zoom account says, sorry, you can't use this account anymore. And it was like 30 minutes to show time. And I had to get something else happening really, really quick. And so those kind of things it, you know, went, went bubbling right. up or, or maybe a car accident. So it's not just like a minor stress, like somebody cut me off in traffic, but when something right. makes me very, very anxious, then I, I sometimes do get a little bit of symptoms, but, but it's nothing like it used to be. And right. you know, who would tell you that they can't use 
Who would tell Chef AJ that he's a <laughs> well, well, account? No, he, he, he's a wonderful person and <laughs> no, he's I my know. friend. He just waited. He just waited a little bit close to the broadcast to tell me, and, yeah. and so I was like. Uh, what do I do? I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I tend to be wired very anxious and that's just the way I am. And that's yeah. why it is so important for me to have healthy habits and lifestyle choices so that I can keep myself calm. Yeah. And I do believe that there's, you know, especially more than ever now with all the technology and everything, we're being assaulted every single day. So most of us now are actually have grown into being wired um, very anxiously. And, and I'm, I, I am too, which I've only just realized recently but i express it very differently where it's i internalize it but i'm very calm so people tend to think that you know i'm the person who you want to go to when there's a fire breaking out but it actually you know it'll later come out for me in these other ways so whether somebody doesn't present as anxious they're often internalizing it in a different way that'll manifest itself it you know some other way later and i actually prefer um you know, when my staff, for example, are the ones that are like, I'm feeling anxious now. And I'm like, this is awesome. Let's deal with it versus the ones who wait, 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 wait. Um, and I actually think it's more detrimental for your health to not express it um, as readily. So yeah, it's a, just a different way of all of us looking at anxiousness in others. Um, now, I love that you're 60 years old because you are like walking beauty inside and out with your knowledge, your beautiful body, your style, everything inside and out. And I love it because you're a living example of what aging gracefully and beautifully can be like, but it hasn't been easy. And I want to talk about that part because you mentioned earlier that obesity is all about lifelong management. And I said, hit this one home, drop the truth bombs, because you do have a workshop called The Truth About Weight Loss. Yeah, I, I, every February, this will be the third year in 2021, uh, my partner Toby and I produce a summit called The Truth About Weight Loss. And I get to interview wonderful doctors and experts in all different fields about what is the truth about weight loss. And I've never been an expert in my summit, I'm the host, but I, I always said one day, maybe somebody will interview me because I actually lived it. Not a lot of these wonderful researchers and doctors have actually never been overweight or obese. They, they know what they know from the research and their patients, but I actually lived it. I lived in an obese body for 52 years and then a slender one for eight years, which I much prefer by the way, but I think I really understand what it takes to keep the weight off. And that's a part of the conversation that nobody really wants to hear. Yeah. So talk about then what is the truth around weight loss? You know, how can you summarize that for people in a way that, you know, hopefully they will just hear it yeah. and internalize it and then start taking action. Cause I'm going to dive into what we need to do to be able to do it. I, I think the truth about weight loss is that it's simple but it's not easy. And what I mean by that, if you, know, if you just take a really broad like, look with the lens, it's like, okay, well, if you consume less calories, then you burn, you'll lose weight. Yeah, but how you do it makes a big difference to whether or not you're going to be able to maintain that weight loss. Because I would argue that anybody that has ever wanted to lose weight has lost weight at some point in their life. Yet 98% of people that have ever lost weight have gained it all back usually within two years, and generally they gain more weight than where they started. Mm 
Yeah. And that is for a lot of reasons. But I think one of the main reasons is, is people are looking to go on a diet. They're looking for a quick or a temporary fix. And you can't do that with a chronic disease. A chronic disease like obesity requires lifelong management. And so what I see happen time and time again is people will pick one system of eating, one program, one style to lose the weight, usually quickly. And then when they lose the weight, they choose another way of eating. It doesn't work. The only way you're ever going to be able to maintain your weight loss is to do what you are willing to do forever. Because if it's not sustainable, it's not permanent. So people will go on my plan or some other plan, like a strict weighing and measuring plan, counting calories, they'll lose the weight, and then they'll go back to eating what they were eating before. And, and just like Einstein said something to the effect of you can't use the, the, the mind that created the problem to create the solution, you can't use the diet that created the obesity to create the slender body. And so people like high fat, high calorie foods. People love to eat junk food. They like to drink alcohol and eat peanut butter sandwiches. That's fine then you gotta find a way to do that while you're losing weight. You can't go on some kind of diet and then go back to eating these foods, especially now because once you've lost weight, you require fewer calories. And because of this terrible thing called metabolic compensation or calorie penalty, your metabolism is even lower. And so I, I think that people must on some level know this, but this is what I see time and time again. And it, it almost breaks my heart more when I see people who I've worked with who've lost anywhere from 50 to several hundred pounds put it back on because I know how hard they work to get there. The thing is, is it's it's you know it's like it's like being an alcoholic. It's a day at a time, but it's a bite at a time. You can't then just switch it in the middle and say, okay, now that I lost weight, I'm going to go back to drinking alcohol every night or or doing whatever it is. It won't work. You have to if you want to have certain behaviors, whether they're healthy or not, or certain foods, whether they're highly caloric or not, you've got to find a way to include them now, not then. But unfortunately, those are the foods that are generally the ones that aren't going to facilitate a slender body and a healthy body. Yeah. But people are so addicted to sugar, fat, and salt, and processed food, and, and animal products like cheese that it's really, really hard, especially in a world, as my mentor, Dr. Alan Goldhammer says, when we live in a world designed to make us yeah. sick, fat, and miserable. Everybody else around us is doing it, so it must not be that bad, right? Yeah. And you had said earlier, you know, you had discovered that you had a food addiction and, you know, I would counter that actually it, it really is the food that is addictive. So even people who would eat some of this food in moderation and just because they don't have a propensity to, let's say, hold on to the weight, it doesn't mean they're body is not becoming slowly diseased over time. We see a lot of slender people get cancer. A lot of slender people have diabetes. A lot of slender people have heart attacks. And so there's this perception that, well, if you're overweight, that means you're unhealthy, but you can also just be a regular weight, but you have um, metabolic disease happening all throughout your body because you're still eating these foods that are not foods in moderation. You think you have control over them when really, I think the true sign that you are not attached to these addictive foods is when you actually can say, I don't want the cheese at that party. I'm not going to have the wine just because everybody else is socializing and I don't want it. Not because I'm afraid of it or it's going to harm me, but actually because you're like, I don't need it. I don't want it. That's not how I want to serve my body. 
and which is the lifestyle that I take from reading your books that you live now. Yeah, I, I, I don't want it. <laughs> I yeah. know what it does to you, you know. I, you know, I'm like that cat that jumped on the stove and like I was burned, like, no, thank you, not again. And you're so yeah. right about the fact that there are people that can remain slender eating crap, but like you said, it doesn't mean they're healthy. I'm, yeah. I can't remember the exact name of the movie. I want to say it's fed up, but there was a movie that came out maybe 10 or 15 years ago about childhood obesity. And they put these children that were not overweight I'm guessing it was CAT scan or MRI, and they found out they called it TOFI, thin outside, fat inside. And that even though they did not physically look overweight, they had the more dangerous kind of fat around their internal organs, not the subcutaneous fat, but the visceral fat. So they weren't healthy. And the fact that somebody can eat crap and be slender, it, it's, that's genetic. It's, it's not because they have more willpower than you or they're stronger. It's just because they can eat that crap like my husband. He can eat whatever he wants. It doesn't matter what he eats. Healthy, unhealthy, yeah. he's always going to be thin. That's his whole family history. And the thing is, is those people are getting fewer and fewer. Yeah. Yeah. My husband's exactly the same way. He's, you know, so incredibly thin and he could probably live off of cheese and salami, which, you know, in front that he's from Quebec City, which is French cuisine. And, but also if you look at his family, all the men pretty much died of heart attacks or have had heart attacks, you know, by the time they were 45, 50 years old. And, you know, a lot of them have Alzheimer's in the family and all of these other lifestyle diseases. And some would say it's genetic, but uh, we know that these are lifestyle diseases, very, very small percentages, actually genetic. So let's go back to um, you know, we've gone through when you were a child, an adolescent, then what was your 20s like at this point? Because you had now gone into the hospital. This is where they're feeding you all of this food. What was like like after that for you when you left the hospital? Well, the 20s were hard in a different way because now I developed bulimia, which I always say in some ways is worse than anorexia. And what, by, what I mean by that is anorexia is a very passive disease. I didn't have to do anything. I just, just didn't have, I just didn't eat. I could just lay around. I was freezing cold, but I, th there wasn't anything I really had to do. And I didn't have the energy to do it. And I was very depressed. And so you know, but bulimia, in order to keep that up, required gargantuan tasks like over-exercising, purging, taking laxatives, taking diuretics. It was like a 24-hour job. That, that was, in many ways, more devastating, that cycle. And, uh, and so that's what my, my 20s were. And I remember, I think it was, I was 25 years old, and I just, I couldn't, I just couldn't do it anymore. And I remember, like, this is like, you know, they say that everybody has to hit rock bottom. And I, yeah. I see a lot of people do. And I remember, you know, saying to God, please, I can't just, because, you know, you burn your esophagus, you you rot your teeth with the, with the acid. And I, I just said, just please, just let me eat like a normal person and I'll accept any weight. I, I should have said, I'll accept any, not overweight weight. Yes. But, but the thing is, is, is it, it really was like that. I, I, you know, it just, I couldn't do it anymore. I just, I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. And I love that you said, you know, please, God, let me eat like a normal person. Because I'm sure at the time you were thinking like, let me be the person who can have burgers and fries and chips, but have a normal weight. And I, I don't think there's anybody that can eat like 
a normal standard American diet that we know of. Like there's no one who's going to be able to eat like that. Very few people who are not going to pay the price. And that's shown in the statistics with one in two people getting diagnosed with cancer, one in four having diabetes, you know, heart disease being the leading cause of death in North America when it's not prevalent in societies that don't eat the refined foods like we do eat. So there has to be this new definition of what a normal diet is. Yeah. Right? I, I think I meant by normal, I mean, I just didn't want to binge or purge anymore. There, totally, is, so yeah, much, no. there is so much shame with bulimia, yeah. whereas anorexia, in a weird way, you kind of feel empowered. There's something weird that goes on when you don't yeah. eat, where like you feel like kind of better than everybody. Like, look at me, I cannot yeah. eat. And, and it, it's, a, it's, it's a crazy disease, what it does to your head. But, but with bulimia, you, 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 you beat yourself up so much because there's so much shame because the behavior is so bizarre. You know, but, but we know now that you can't be bulimic if you weren't restricting in the first place. It just doesn't exist. Yeah. If, if there was no restriction, there'd be no bulimia. Exactly. So how did you transition through that stage of your life? I'm trying to think what I, I No, I think it, I'm trying to remember. It's like it's a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> the 20s were okay, actually. Um, you know, even though I was still fat, I, I remember, I, I, you know, my, I remember I, I got a really fun job in my late 20s. I believe it or not, it was one of my favorite jobs. I was, I started a dog walking business and one of my clients was Michael J. Fox. And it was, it was, it was really fun. And I do remember enjoying my late twenties and, you know, I still was overweight, but by then more people were catching up to me. It wasn't like that I was sticking out like a sore thumb. And uh, I, I went back to college because, you know, I had to drop out when I was anorexic. I was at the University of Pennsylvania. So, so my self-esteem was building and, and things were not that bad. And then I ended up meeting my husband and getting married. So it, you know, things, my life, you know, that's why when I, when I told my epic talk at the McDougal weekend from fat vegan to skinny bitch, you know, I, I, people were really sad in the audience. I could see it. I'm like, look, look, if there's a happy ending, it gets better. I promise you it gets better. <laughs> and my life has progressively gotten better. You know, I wouldn't want to go back and redo it. I'll tell you that though. Right. So, so, and you know, I want to say, did God answer your prayers or, you know, when you said, I want to eat like a normal person, I want to stop doing this because you felt the acidity in your throat, all of that. Um, did you have to go back to another clinic to be able? I, I didn't, I did not go back to another okay. clinic and he answered my prayers in that I was no longer, I don't, I never binged again or purged again, but I think my prayers were answered in January of 2011 when I went for the first time as a patient to the True North Health Center and met Dr. Alan Goldhammer and Dr. Doug Lyle, the co-authors of The Pleasure Trap. And they, it was like literally like when, uh, you know, when Moses went up to Mount Sinai and God handed them the Ten Commandments, really that's, it was like that moment. Like they revealed to me the truth about weight loss, about, they taught me about calorie density and they, they it was like, unbelievable. And that's really what I teach now is I, I didn't make any of this up. It's uh, everything I learned from Dr. Lyle, Dr. Goldhammer, Dr. McDougall. I'm basically just saying, oh, this is what they said. I just didn't understand it before. I was like, I needed to hear it from God. <laughs> so how did you go from, you know, growing up this way, believing that food was one way, but then how did you end up at the True North Clinic? And for those of you who don't know what the True North Clinic is, we'll put the link in the show notes, um, but it's a place where definitely a lot of people who have chronic disease, who are overweight, who have health issues will often go and they teach you. You'll live there um, for extended periods of time and they'll teach you how to uh, intermittent fast 
full-blown fasts um, or you know really just how to eat really clean good food so you know were you at that time were you googling um, I mean I remember the time when I didn't have access to Google um, how did you find True North yeah so I found True North because I had first found Dr. Furman and I actually was teaching cooking and I had a friend and the client who had cancer who became a patient of Dr. Furman and he couldn't get the food to taste good. And I said, well, let me figure out the diet you're on and I will make the food taste good because I'm a chef, I can do that. And I remember going to Dr. Furman's website and seeing this book, The Pleasure Trap, ordering it, reading it and I said, wow, this is mind blowing. And I, you know, I think one of the coolest things in living in the world we live in today is you can actually meet authors of books. Like we can yes. talk to each. It's it's this is this is incredible. Like when you're a little, like I don't remember. You know, I remember reading books by Steinbeck and Pearl S. Buck. I didn't get to talk to them or <laughs> go go meet them. And so I went there because, and it wasn't even because I was overweight or had dysphoric eating. There was a whole period of my 40s that were sort of a little bit dark when I kept trying to get pregnant, and I was able to get pregnant successfully four times but I kept miscarrying, but it wasn't like your normal miscarriage where you just like, oh, you know, you lose the baby. It was like every single one required extensive operations. Sometimes it was just, it was just crazy. Like what, wow. what, what my body went through. And so, plus the fact that I kept losing, you know, children and stuff like that one was very, very late. It was almost a live birth. Anyway, so what happened was, is finally, and I think I was 47, I want to say it was 47 or 49, I went on psychiatric medication. I didn't want to, because I don't even like to take anything other than, you know, my B12, and I am on thyroid medicine now, but I, I just, I just be, being an anxious person, I'm afraid of everything, every pill, yeah. every procedure. And I remember like not wanting to do it, and I remember even going to like a naturopath doctor, and I remember him saying, look, my career is to get people off these drugs, but in your case, I think we really need to take them. So, because I had, I developed panic disorder from all these operations. It was like, you know, I had to have all these emergency surgeries and I'm like freaking out. So I developed panic disorder and agoraphobia. Didn't leave my house for a whole year. That's what my first book on process was about. Plus it's a cookbook. So it's kind of- It is, it's a great book. <laughs> Thank you. I combined those two things. And uh, so what happened was, is I actually went there in an attempt to get off psychiatric medicine. And I had had my consult with Dr. Goldhammer on the phone. He goes, oh yeah, we'll, we'll fast you. You'll be here six weeks and blah, blah, blah. I'll get you out. You'll write your letter to work. Well, I get there and the medical doctor said, no, we can't fast her. You can't fast people on these medicines. So I was there for only a week. I did a juice fast, but I met the secret weapon of Dr. Goldhammer and Dr. Lyle. And eventually within, I think a year or two, I did get off the psych medicine working with Dr. Lyle. And, but but the, the weight loss was just the bonus. That's not why I was going there. But then when you go to the lectures and you hear what they're teaching, it's like, wow, this really makes sense. Nobody ever explained calorie density to me before. No, exactly. Can you summarize what calorie density means for yeah. people? Sure. It's, it's yeah. like, that is my favorite thing to talk about because it's so impersonal because when yeah. people say, oh, you know, I had trauma, I had a fuse, that's why I'm overweight. No, it's because you don't understand calorie density. Yeah. So calorie density, or it's often called energy density by a lot of the doctors. It, calorie density is how many calories are in a pound of food. And why that's significant is because a researcher at Penn State University, Dr. Barbara Rolls, who wrote a wonderful series of books called Volumetrics, discovered in her eating lab at Penn State, where she studies human eating behavior, that most people eat three to five pounds of food per day. Now, that doesn't mean that a, you know, a huge bodybuilder doesn't eat more or somebody very peaky 
satisfies, but in general, most of us eat three to five pounds of food a day to be full and satisfied. And if you understand this concept of calorie density, which is different than counting calories, because you don't need to know how many calories in a half a cup of rice or a cup of blueberries, you just need to understand the average calorie density of a few major food groups. You can change that and you can easily lose weight by actually eating more food. That's why Dr. Horner's wrote a book called Eat More, Way Less. And so foods that are natural, that are found in nature, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, these are very high nutrient foods that are also calorically dilute. They have anywhere between 100 and 600 calories per pound. But the foods that Americans eat 92% of their calories from, animal products and processed food, are like 700 and higher calories per pound. And we evolved at a calorie density at about 750. So things like sugar, for example, is 1,800 calories per pound, whereas beets are 195 calories a pound. When you process a food, you make it calorie-rich and nutrient-poor because you're removing the fiber, you're removing the water. Something like, like flour and bread is about 1,500 calories a pound, but the whole grain that it was made from is only 500 calories a pound. Yeah. Corn is about 600 calories a pound, but you make it into corn oil and it's now 4,000 calories a pound. So basically food ranges in caloric density from 100 calories per pound to about 4,000 calories per pound. There's a 40-fold difference. And when you simply change what you're eating, you don't have to change when you're eating or why you're eating or how much you're eating. And when you go to a place like the True North Health Center or the McDougal Live-In Program, and you can eat this style of eating, they call it ad libitum, you realize, oh my God, it wasn't that I was eating too much, I was just eating the wrong food. Exactly, and you are a chef, and I would say, you know, chefs are trained actually to take beautiful, amazing local organic produce, but then they add the refined sugar, they add the calorie dense refined oil, the calorie dense um, ingredients. And all of a sudden they take something that is so good for you and healthy for you. If they had just actually left it alone, maybe made a delicious dip or a dressing or a sauce out of the whole foods instead out of the oils and salts and sugars. And then they could truly be serving people food that will not make them feel uh, you know, it, for example, going home after you've had often a lot of, you know, these dense caloric restaurant foods is a lot of people complain that they can't sleep because their liver is so overworked, their kidneys so overworked from these caloric dense foods. And chefs across the nation, if they were to understand this concept, they could be tackling the diabetes epidemic like that. Yeah, the problem is, is they don't understand anything about oil, how, I mean, it is, it is, it's just, it's mind blowing yeah. because like what you said is so true because Dr. Goldhammer said to me that we, we determine somebody's greatness as a chef by their ability to concentrate sugar, fat, and salt. Yeah. And I have worked, when I lived in LA, I worked with restaurants about getting the oil out of the food. And at first the chefs really have an attitude because they, they went to culinary school. They weren't taught that you can cook without oil. You don't need it for baking. You don't need it for sauteing. So they kind of have a little bit of an attitude. But then when they see that the food either tastes the same or better without the oil and that they're actually saving money, which chefs are on, you know, they have to make the budget for the restaurant. They're like, oh, and then they see it's easier to clean up the pan. The yeah. problem is, is we 
produce this neurotransmitter in the brain called dopamine whenever we have a pleasurable experience. And the more concentrated the calories, the more dopamine is released. So you get much more from a bi-fat restaurant meal with oil at 4,000 calories a pound than you do with steamed broccoli at 100 calories a pound. And so like you say, restaurants know they have to hyper-concentrate sugar, fat, and salt and give you a lot of it so that you'll keep coming back. You know, they keep you stuck in the pleasure trap in that cycle of addictive or hedonic eating. And, and even if somebody doesn't want to go vegan, not everybody will. I mean, I have seen people just have the weight melt off just by stopping oils. I mean, 4,000 calories a pound. When, when I think about it, it's like 140 calories for one tablespoon. I could have two pounds of zucchini for that. What's going to fill you up more? The zucchini with the water, fiber, vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals, antioxidants, and micronutrients, or this processed oil. And people say, oh, your brain needs fat. Well, first of all, there's fat in everything. There's, yes. there's even trace amounts of fats in food. I think greens have something like 3% of their calories from fat. Oats are like 20% fat. You can't really be fat deficient unless you're calorie deficient. It's, it's not the omega-6 we want. It's from the oil. We, yeah. The fat we need is like the omega-3, which we can get from flax seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds, and by the way, from greens, which people don't realize. Mm. And so, I mean, oil to me is like the stupidest thing you can eat. It's just, it's just, it's just ridiculous. I used to do these experiments when I was teaching cooking in person and I would make a black bean soup that was delicious. And I would make one with the obligatory quarter cup of oil at the beginning and one without. And either people couldn't tell the difference or they said they liked the one without oil better. It is just like Dr. West Younger said, it's, it's, it's hypercaloric malnutrition and a triumph of marketing over science. You know, we didn't historically eat oil. We just no. didn't. You can't squeeze an olive and get oil out the way you can squeeze an orange and get orange juice out. Oil was a prize in the Olympic days that we that the the they, the winners adorned their body with. I don't know exactly when we started putting it in their mouth, but it's disgusting. And when you stop it and your skin clears up and you lose the excess weight and it, it's 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 no no good. Yeah, and estrogens balance out as well because these high fat, uh, high fats like including the olive oil and doesn't matter what it is contributes to hormone imbalance as well in the body. And so it's really important for people to understand. And and there has been such extensive, well done marketing to convince people, for example, that olive oil is the good oil, um, and it really isn't. At all. Well, it depends what you compare it to, you know? Yeah. I mean, cocaine is the good drug compared to methamphetamine, maybe, but it's it's not necessary. <laughs> and in a world where almost everyone is overweight or obese, why are we giving them oil? And, you know, it also blocks the taste buds in your tongue so that you can't taste your food. You got to put a lot more salt on it. It's just, I, you know, if there's anything good that's in olive oil, it's in the olive. So eat the olive. Yeah. If there's anything good in coconut oil, eat the coconut. Same thing with avocado or flax. And I can't imagine why people would think that a processed food that is not found in nature, that our ancestors didn't eat throughout evolution, is now the secret to health and or anything like that. No, exactly. And, you know, again, it comes down to marketing. And if you can take a barrel of olives and turn it into oil and then tell people it's good for your hair, your skin, your nails, your uh, digestion, your everything. I mean, it's an easy product to market because at least, you know, they stabilize it with chemicals. It can sit on a shelf, um, you know, indefinitely in a lot of cases. And so there you go. You have shelf stable olives versus, you know, you know, the avocados 
Sometimes we get boxes at our restaurants that are just not good when they arrive. And so it is a little bit more work when you're dealing with the whole food versus when you're dealing with the canned or the bottled or the packaged or the box product. And so it really is, you know, it, it's the issue of convenience for a lot of people as well. And that's where we get back to what you said, for example, that lifelong management piece. It's that you're going to be working at this every single day because we eat three times or more a day and you're going to be eating, I hope, for the rest of your life. So it really is, you know, every day being super mindful about all the bites of food that you put into your body. Um, when you were at, so as you were transitioning at True North, were your parents still around at this time? Uh, oh gosh, no, they weren't. My, 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 my dad passed away in 2000, my mom in 2003. So no, they never, they never saw any of my oh. success. I know it's, it's too bad, but yeah. No. I'm sure they're watching from somewhere. Um, and yeah, I'm sure you have lots of family members as well that have been witness to it, not to mention the thousands and thousands of people that have been witness to it as well. So then when you were at True North, um, can you just maybe describe what that was like to be there in addition to the education and, you know, you're learning, you're doing this, you're watching the weight melt off, you know, what is that experience like when people go there? I think it can be life-changing for most people because if nothing else, you're with really like-minded people. You're with the, the super hyper-conscientious people that really want the answers and really want to get well because nobody's going to put themselves through a fast or even a juice fast and pay money, I think, if they're not serious. And the, the caliber of medical care that you get and that Dr. Goldhammer gives in the lectures and the food, it's, it's a great, it, it's $149 a day. It costs more to stay at the Marriott here for one night and, and you don't get three meals and, and two lectures or three lectures a day. So it really, it, it, it's, it's, it's a great experience. And you meet people from all over the world too. I mean, not, maybe not right now during the pandemic, but yeah. in general, when it's open, I mean, I met people from India and people from Japan and people from all over the United States. And you don't feel like a freak there. That's the thing, because when everybody's doing what it, it, it feels like going home, that's what it like ET, that's what True North feels like home. Yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful way of describing it. And when you were there, because True North is, a lot of people come to me and say, I want to do a fast, I'm going to go to True North. Um, and it's much more than that. But where did fasting play a role in this for you? So I never water fasted because remember at the beginning I was on psych medicine and, and I wasn't able to. So I did a juice fast, which was difficult. And I'm told that a lot of people it actually is harder because you're still getting a little bit of calories. You never really go into ketosis. And, and so by the time I went back there, I was already on the road to, to being slender that I felt like I didn't even need to because you don't really fast to lose weight. People have to understand this is not a fat problem. We don't go to true north to lose weight. We go there to reverse chronic lifestyle diseases. In the case of somebody that's overweight or obese, where fasting can help is it can reset the palate, the taste buds quicker so that they can neuroadapt and like the taste of the natural food. I already liked it, so I, I actually never did it. And um, it sounds very difficult actually to, to not go without food for as long as sometimes people go 40 days there with no, no food, just water. Exactly. And, you know, this is something I want to touch on because you've been to True North and I remember I was at a physician's conference a few years ago and I took one of the pre-event workshops with Dr. Clapper and he, he was amazing. He stood up there and he said, fasting is not what reverses your disease. Fasting is not what makes you skinny. Fasting is not, you know, what gives you health. 
fat, the reason it's the work that they're doing while the person is fasting from anywhere from a few days to the 40 days. It's where he said, it's because we teach you how to love, cook real foods. We teach you how to use them and use them in your life because eating is what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. And it was so good because I think, you know, I mean, I know that now everybody's looking for that one hit wonder. So fasting is that next one hit wonder. Yeah. And, sure, it, it, and I have too many people that, in, that I know that were, that were in my program or clients that basically lost their weight fasting. And guess what? They didn't keep it off because you cannot stay in a fasted state. No. Yeah. And you have to learn the lifestyle, which is what you're talking about, that lifelong management lifestyle of using food as medicine, of using food to maintain a healthy weight so that, um, yeah, you are living optimally. So um, what happened with, I've heard you talk about this before, but I'd love for you to touch on it again, because, you know, people will have heart disease and they'll take the meds and they claim that they don't have heart disease anymore because they have low blood pressure, et cetera. Same thing with diabetes, but the one thing that they can't seem to overcome with the medication is the energy, right? The energy is the one people, that, the one thing that everybody craves. So touch on that, what that was like throughout your life, and then discovering True North, and then discovering this way of life. Well, well I, you know, it's funny because now that I've been off sugar for for so long now, my energy is through the roof because my energy that I used to have from sugar and caffeine that was not really real energy. That was yeah. drugged energy. And this is the real energy without caffeine, without stimulants, without chocolate, without sugar. So I, I, I have a lot of it. And I, I mean, it's not that I never get tired. I work hard, I get tired, but I get tired appropriately in relation yeah. to how much exercise or work I've done. And I sleep well. And I don't know, it's just, I, I just wish people could know how good they're going to feel if they do it. And unfortunately, until you do it, you don't know. And that's, that's the thing. It's like, you know, people that, that smoke cigarettes and <clears throat> cough all the time, they maybe can't imagine what it's like to really breathe again until they get off the cigarettes. It's the same thing with an alcoholic that's drunk every day, can't imagine it. And it's the same thing when you reverse obesity and manage food addictions. You, you, I think you habituate to how bad you feel. Like, yeah. like a lot of times people that feel bad don't even really know how bad they felt until they start feeling better. But there is an opportunity to feel incredible. And I think when you go to a place like the True North Health Center, it just goes faster because yeah. that process of healing is sped up a little bit so that you can feel better quicker. Exactly. And, and um, it's so true. That energy that you feel, it is so, it's, it's almost limitless. Every year that goes by that you live this way, your energy levels keep going. It feels like they just keep going up and up and up. And you are you know, being 60 years old as well, there's all of this talk around how well, you know, people, you know, in their 60s, 70s and 80s need to start introducing more protein because as you're older, you're not metabolizing protein as fast. And so that's where, you know, it might be important to eat meat and, you know, or a little bit of chicken and all this. What are your thoughts on that? Oh my God. My thought is get thee to a lifestyle <laughs> medicine doctor. So there are a, there is a specialty in medicine now called lifestyle medicine, and you can find them pretty much everywhere. And the nice thing is now, especially since the pandemic, 
if you can't get in to see one in person, you can get telemedicine. And these are people that understand food as medicine and they will run your labs and they will explain to you the real truth about how much protein you need. And if you really do need more, and if you do need more, guess what? You can have more quinoa, you can have more beans, but there's never, the answer is never animal products and processed food. That's never the answer to any disease. That is what caused the disease. Yeah, exactly. And there's so much evidence to show that too with the, you know, the meat loving bacteria in our gut produces that TMAO reaction, which then stiffens our vascular system, which then doesn't allow insulin to get across, which then, you know, lends itself to all health diseases, whether it's eye disease or heart disease or diabetes or um, Alzheimer's and, you know, even shutting down our reproductive um, systems. I mean, it's just everything is connected in one. I do have to ask you, from your perspective, and this is a very, uh, maybe a selfish question here, but I'm going to be running and cycling across Canada, which is 7,000, a little over 7,000 kilometers. And I'll be doing that every single day for 75 days. And it's been interesting because I've been meeting with different, um, uh, different nutritionists just to hear their different perspectives. And it's been amazing because some people have said, you know, you're a woman, so you can't metabolize carbohydrates. So therefore you cannot um, rely on potatoes and quinoa and, you know, all these, you know, beautiful nutrient dense, um, protein dense, you know, whole foods. And then I've had, um, you know, I, I've just heard it all. Um, you're going to just have to eat nuts and seeds the whole entire time. And, you know, you're going to have to eat tofu the whole time and tempeh the whole time. What are your thoughts on tofu and tempeh? If you well, can just explain yeah. that. Well, first of all, I would say, if you're really concerned, talk to Dotsy Boyce, because she is an Olympian yes. who won an Olympic medal eating all the plant foods. So I think tofu and tempeh are amazing. I'm allergic to soy. I cannot enjoy them. But I just heard they actually make them out of, out of hemp seeds and pumpkin seeds now. So yeah. I, I haven't tried that yet. But my first thing is, is sweet potatoes and dates. That's all you need to get through it. Totally. Yeah. And that's what I actually pack in the, in all my back pockets when I'm cycling or when I'm running is that I'll usually have a banana and four dates. And, you know, it's about roughly 200, almost 300 calories worth of food. It's so dense, but it's so easy to pop in there. And I never feel, you know, tired when I'm running. I regenerate really well afterwards and I'm ready to go for the next run and bike run. Um, so then the other thing is about nuts and seeds, because in some of your podcasts that you've done before, um, and, and in your book, even though some of your recipes do have seeds. Yes. So nuts. this is this. Okay. So this is just my experience. And, and I believe that everybody's body is their own best teacher. So I think yes. we should even more than listening to our doctor, we have to listen to our own body because what works for one may not work for the other. And that's why I'm a big fan of what Dr. Lyle says about doing an experiment. So this is actually how he worked with me. I, not a doctor, but I, it seems to me that people vary genetically in how much fat they can eat and remain lean. It's like that old children's nursery rhyme, Jack Spratt could eat no fat, his wife could eat no lean. My husband can eat nut butter sandwiches all day and pounds and pounds of cashews and stay skinny as a rail. For me, it seems that what Dr. McDougall says, the fat you eat is the fat you wear, is very, very true. Because even when I cut my nuts and seeds down to the minimum of the ounce a day, which they say is, is, is a good amount, my weight loss was stalled. But when I got rid of all the extra fat from nuts, seeds, and avocado, the fat melted off my body. So I make sure, though, that I get my omega-3. See, the fat we're worried about, though, is the omega-3s. That's yeah. what we want. We're not worried about the omega-6. So... 
there's a blood test called the fatty acid profile that your doctor can order, or you can even, I'm, I'm told that today, you can actually just ask for your own blood test. There's some website, but yeah. I think it's better to get the, the stick from the phlebotomist than the, just the little finger thing that you do. Mm -hmm. And so I get this done every single year since I stopped eating overt fats and my levels are very, very high, but I'm not taking in omega-6. I'm not eating oils and processed food and I'm eating tons of greens. See, most people are not willing to eat as many vegetables, especially greens as I am. I remember one of the, I have so, all these gold hammerisms in my head. He said so many profound things all the years. I actually ended up teaching at Trimor for about 10 years. Right. But he said, show me an overweight person and I'll show you someone who is unwilling to eat enough raw salad and steamed vegetables. Not unable, but unwilling. And I think I eat much more vegetables than the average person, at least two pounds a day, sometimes more. And I'm talking pounds, which is like, what, 200 calories. So I get plenty of those omega-3 fatty acids. And, 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 but I think this is something that people have to, to check. If you can incorporate nuts and seeds and avocado and are happy with your weight and health, then do it. But there's nothing wrong with running the experiment for like three weeks and taking them out or just having that one tablespoon of flaxseed or two tablespoons just to see if that maybe pushes your weight loss just a little bit further. And, you know, I think people are going to be different. But then again, it comes down to if you can't lose weight eating it, don't add it back later. It's not going to work. If you want to eat them, eat them now. Find a way to eat it now instead of adding it later, that's always going to be a disaster when you add back those foods that you took away to lose weight. Exactly. Exactly. And um, one of the other things uh, that would be really great to wrap up with is helping people understand that what you have done, which has been incredible, you are about eating a plethora of beautiful foods where you don't have to count the calories, where you don't have to worry about, you know, necessarily overeating. I'm sure you eat until you're what 80% full or full and you know and you're happy with that and your body's happy with that and it's obviously you're living proof that that is working. But again, many of my clients will think that it's an elimination diet doing this when you eliminate for example the fats and the meat and the dairy and and everything whereas i try and get them to think of it as an abundance so um an abundance lifestyle so can you talk to that because i think this is where we need to shift people's mindset and also a lot of the nutritionists out there and the doctors out there that uh, you know often people have issues and they say okay well cut that out cut that out cut that out cut that out and then eventually they're not eating anything, but they still have their health issues. They still have the weight. Well, that, that word uh, elimination is an interesting word because when you're an alcoholic and want to recover from alcoholism, you got to eliminate alcohol. So if you have a chronic lifestyle disease, you have to eliminate the foods that caused it. I mean, so, so I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. There is something called an elimination diet that people often use for allergy testing where they have a specific goal in mind. But to me, if you're eliminating toxic chemicals, that's a good thing and not a bad thing. You know, so, so I, I, think, uh, I, think, <laughs> I think they can always try it for an experiment. And if it doesn't work, you know, you can always go back to eating it. But the thing is, when people really do what we say, it's never not worked. Yeah, it's never not worked. Maybe we could um, wrap up with a couple stories from some of your clients just to give them idea. I mean, we've heard your story and I know what often happens is people think, well, 
look at her. She's so vibrant and energetic and for sure she was able to do it, but it must not apply to everybody. And I love what you said that it's never not worked. So maybe you can case studies and stories are such a beautiful way to inspire people. Yeah. I, I, okay. So who? I'll start with Shada because she was one of my first clients and it's been eight years now where she's kept off 120 pounds. And the interesting thing about Shada is even when she was obese, she always exercised just because she loved it. And, and that was a good thing though, because when she lost the weight, she didn't have the saggy skin that most people have because right. she did have a lot of muscle underneath the fat. And when I met her, she was in a, a boot for a torn tendon in her uh, ankle, I believe it was, or it was in her foot. She had seen four surgeons and they said they were going to have to operate. And she just didn't want this operation. But the thing is, she's in this clunky boot. She cannot exercise at all. And this is when she decides to start her weight loss journey. And that's when she realized, yeah, it really is all about the food. That exercise is important. It helps your self-esteem. It helps you stick to a healthy eating plan. And she still was able to do stuff with her upper body. She still did some you know, little boxing in a chair, throwing a medicine ball. But the thing is, the most interesting thing is she not only lost 120 pounds, but the tendon in the foot healed. And the doctor said, well, we've never seen that before. You know, I mean, the miracles that, that happen. And, and, and this isn't really a success story, but this I want to, I want to, Point out something I did to my husband. I experimented against his will on him without him knowing, just so people understand that calorie density, it doesn't, it never doesn't work. When I first heard that oil was deleterious to your health from Dr. Paul B. Esselstyn Jr. of the Cleveland Clinic, who wrote Prevent Reverse Heart Disease, he talked about how it's atherogenic, diabetogenic, and obesogenic. I stopped eating oil. It was August 1st, 2008. And because it made really, it made a lot of sense what he said, I have a family history of heart disease. And it, it really isn't hard to stop cooking with oil because it, like I said, it coated the taste buds of your tongue. You need to use more salt. And especially I was still using the whole plant fats like nuts, seeds, and avocados. So my husband didn't detect any difference in the taste of the food because oil really doesn't have any taste. As a matter of fact, they've done studies where they've given people restaurant food where there's an extra 500 calories of oil in it versus the same meal made at home without it. And they, people couldn't taste the difference. But the bad part was, is the 500 calories from oil, they couldn't detect any more fullness because oil slips under the radar undetected by the stretch nutrient and calorie receptors. So we stopped oil. I didn't tell him. The food didn't taste different. I would make his breakfast in the morning. I'd send his lunch with him to work. He'd eat dinner at night. And he doesn't wear a belt, but about seven months after stopping oil, he didn't even know because he doesn't do any of the cooking. He, we had to go to a formal wedding and he went to put his belt on and he, it was, he couldn't find a hole. It was too big. And he, was, and he stepped on the scale and he lost like nine pounds. He goes, oh my God, I must have cancer. I'm like, calm down. We just stopped oil. So I, I used that experiment to tell people that if somebody that didn't need to lose weight, that didn't want to lose weight, that was experimenting on against their will, could lose that much weight from just stopping oil, imagine how much you could lose if you did some of these things on purpose. I know, I know. If, you know, I would love to almost force feed this podcast to everybody because it is, people do have to find their own journey and, you know, you're living proof that you know, you have all of this information, but even your partner is, you know, choosing their own path. And my teacher did exactly the same thing with her husband. Um, went, well, not the same thing, but, you know, she's been reversing disease with thousands of clients around the world using food as medicine for 40 years. And her husband decides to do keto. And she said, okay, 
yeah, okay, yeah, you go do that. That's great. And didn't judge him, didn't say anything, you know, and allowed him to do that. And, you know, and it was because he wanted to lose weight, but he wasn't eating the foods that, you know, he would always add the oils and the salt and the sugars to the foods she, that she'd cook. And she wouldn't eat them. And sure enough, he put himself in the hospital with kidney stones and gallbladder stones. And so then she looked at him and she's like, do you want to try maybe doing what I'm doing? And then sure enough, reversed his kidney stones, gallbladder stones. And we can't force people on this path. They do have to discover it for themselves. But what are some tips for you? Or what are some of the things that you know you find helps your client sort of put the two and two together to take that first step? Because that's what it requires is just taking that first step in the beginning. Well, you know, it's going to depend on the individual, but one thing, and they, this is going to sound cliche because so many people have said it, is to find the why that makes you cry. Right. Why do you want to do this? Because if you're just trying to fit into a dress for your daughter's wedding, you will be able to accomplish that goal. But then the minute the wedding's over, it's all going to come back and then some. And that's the thing about these keto diets. They're not only, they're, they're dangerous, like you said, and the weight loss is short term because they're they're losing weight in the short term, but mortgaging their health in the long term. Not to mention when I learned in the GI Health Summit what they're doing to their microbiome with these horrible uh, high animal fat and animal protein diets. So so why do you want to do this? Because if you don't really have a compelling reason, it, it's you know anybody can do anything for a short time. You know their motivation doesn't last, but for a, for a short time you can. You can white knuckle it, you can use willpower, but if you don't really have a strong, compelling reason, you're probably not going to stick to it. Now, my reason was, is when I finally lost weight the third time and it stuck, it's because I was in a wheelchair and I couldn't even go to the bathroom by myself. And I was embarrassed and I was humiliated and I'm like, I was too fat to use the wheel to, to, to do it. I couldn't take care of myself. And I'm like, I'm 50, this is not acceptable. And so for me to not wanting to be in a position of having somebody wipe my butt was my the why that made me cry because it to me that was humiliating and embarrassing and it's not what i wanted not certainly not at the age of 50 maybe at the age of 90 you know i, I could have handled that so so that is one thing but the, i think the two things i noticed that the people that are successful long term have two habits in place and when people say, oh, Chef Jane, you know, you have so much willpower. I, I'm not extraordinary. I mean, maybe I am in some ways, but not. I, the things that sustain me are the habits because preparation trumps motivation. And so the two things that I really teach and that I'm a firm believer on that will make people successful is number one, cleaning up your environment. And number two, having some kind of batch cooking or preparation techniques. Because the thing is, if you don't clean up your environment, it's like the whole thing with they say like if you're an alcoholic and you get out of rehab you don't go back to your job if it was a bartender and if you go and this i see this all the time with my clients that go to true north and they do so well and they start reversing their disease and they get up their insulin and they lose weight and then they go back to the same house that made them fat and sick with the same foods oh but my kids have to have you know uh, count chocolate and my husband has to have tortilla chips well they can still have them out of the house because if it's in your house, it's in your mouth. And until a person is willing to make that step and stay into the universe and get rid of all the crap in the environment, I'm not gonna say they won't be successful, but it's gonna be a lot harder and they are gonna struggle. But if you have a clean environment and don't allow a drop a morsel or a crumb of non-compliant food in your house, and at the same time, learn some simple batch cooking techniques so that your house is always full of delicious and abundant fresh fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, and maybe some nuts, seeds, and avocado. When all you have is healthy food, 
you're going to eat it. And that really has been the secret to sustain my weight loss success for the last 10 years. Exactly. And by following the recipes that you have in your book or, um, you know, the recipes from True North and so many of the other, uh, you know, incredible plant-based physicians, they all have recipe books and their recipes are delicious. So, you know, people have to get over this mindset that eating this way is boring because I do hear that all the time. And I'm like, they're saying it before they've even tried it. And only because they're thinking that they have to give up, you know, the chips and the processed foods and the power bars and, and everything else. So people do have to give it a shot. And sometimes getting away to a retreat center or a wellness center is a way to do it. And it happens at our wellness center all the time. You know, people are like, what, how come we're not adding, you know, all of this, you know, flavorings to our dishes. Well, when, when people say eating this, mm-hmm. Or we'll just say we make these incredible dressings from Whole Foods and then all of a sudden people's worlds light up, you know, and they're like, it was so easy. But well, yeah, what I, were you going to say? Think peop- I think food can only be boring if you're looking for food to be exciting. So mm-hmm. that's like an alcoholic saying, you know, this sobriety, it's really boring. Because what people are looking for is that artificial stimulation of dopamine in the brain from these high fat, sugar, salt foods. And when you take it away, guess what? There, there's going to be a little bit of a detox and suffering that occurs until they get used to the more subtle, you know, tastes of the, of the food without all that, those chemicals added. So yeah, maybe it is boring, but you know, I'd rather be bored and thin than excited and fat. Yeah, exactly. And the taste buds do regenerate and grow back so quickly. So it's not like you're waiting months and months. It's actually days. And then all of a sudden you can taste these incredible flavors and all of the foods. And it's very, very exciting. Um, how can people work with you, Chef AJ? Well, I, I mean, they can see me. If they want, they can see me every day. Because since the pandemic started, I started doing a live show called Chef AJ Live every day at 11 a.m. Pacific time. And sometimes a bonus show at 1 or 2 where I interview amazing guests like you, doctors, chefs, just people that are doing good things in the world. And so they can connect with me that way because I'm, I'm monitoring the chat the whole time. I have... I have a group called Feel Fabulous Over 40, where it's a membership group, but they can try it for two weeks for free. So what was the name of it? Just- oh, it's called, it's, uh, sorry, it's called, I call it FFOF, Feel Fabulous Over 40. It's my membership, my private membership group, but I'd be happy to give anyone a two-week trial for free to see if this is something they like. And uh, we, we go live every five with that smaller private group. And what else do I do? I'm not doing conferences right now since the pandemic, but I've got a lot of books out there for me. A fourth one to come. Hopefully, do a podcast one day. That's in my 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 far future. But that sounds like it would be a lot of fun. What else do I do? Oh, wait, wait. Last Wednesday, every Wednesday, it's a little YouTube show. I'm gonna have my 200th episode very soon. So yeah, uh, they can be on my mailing list if they want to connect. So yeah, just I'm 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 out there. So <laughs> you'll get sick of me, believe me. I haven't gotten sick of you yet because every day I, I, you know, even though I've studied a lot of this, I still learn something profound every single time I listen to you. So, which is fantastic. And it just makes learning fun. Food is fun. And when we can do it in such a healthy way and live this like vigorous, abundant, amazing life that we have, it's uh, why would you want to do it any other way? Chef AJ, it has been such a pleasure having you on our show I have a million other questions to ask you, but I want to leave it for another time um, and let people just digest, no pun intended, or maybe pun intended, all the beautiful resources that you have put out there for people. Uh, Definitely get Chef AJ's books because uh, like I said, the recipes in there are exciting and delicious and you will 
Give yourself a couple days. Your taste buds will grow back. You will love them. And True North, is it open right now? Do you know? It is. It, you know, they're doing the, everything, they, the social distancing, the temperatures, things like that, yeah. the masks. But yes, yes, it is. It's considered an essential service. So it is open. That's amazing. And do you know if it is, I heard, and I'm not in the state, so I don't know for sure, but I heard it was actually covered. It could be covered through insurance in some cases. So my understanding is the 149, which is like your gas and lodging, your room and board, right? That is not covered by insurance, but anything extra. So if you need blood tests, when you see the medical doctor, depending on your insurance, that could be covered. Okay, that is incredible. That is amazing. And we do need to do more work on the policy side to, you know, ensure that, um, you know, programs like these are covered for individuals because it truly is the fastest and, like you said, the easiest way to support people in the reversal of their disease, which includes obesity, um, which contributes to so many of the other illnesses as well. Is there anything else that you want to leave with people? Did we leave any stones unturned. Well, just eat vegetables. That really, it, it, it sounds so simplistic, but your mom was right. Eat your vegetables. That is makes a big difference. Regardless of what else you're eating, eat vegetables too. Fruits and vegetables, of course, because it's not so hard to get people to eat delicious cherries and seeds and a watermelon or bananas. Eat vegetables. That is the secret. They have compounds in them, especially the dark green leafy and the cruciferous ones called thylakoids literally shut your hunger switch off. They fight cravings for hyperpalatable foods. That really is the secret. Eat vegetables, eat vegetables, eat vegetables. Chew them. Don't necessarily blend them into smoothies. That's okay too, but yeah. chew your vegetables. Eat your vegetables and your life will change. Yeah, I agree with you there. And it is so important that you do chew your foods because that stimulates all of the other systems in the body, starting from the saliva in your mouth into your esophagus, into your digestive tract, that, you know, the acids in your stomach. It's really important to do that. I do have one question before we leave. Supplements. I know somebody is going to write to me and be like, she didn't say anything about supplements. Yeah. You mentioned well, well, B12. Right. So I feel that supplements are medications and I have a lifestyle medicine doctor and I do what he says. Now, of course, I believe that anybody on a plant-based diet needs to supplement with B12. I think that's a given, even though they, they say that there's just as much B12 deficiency in people that aren't plant-based and people don't understand that it's not because cows produce B12, it's because they eat the dirt that has the microorganisms in it. So that I think is a non-negotiable. And again, I'm not a doctor, but with the pandemic, a lot of the plant-based doctors are recommending extra vitamin D and zinc, but these are things I think that are best discussed with your own doctor. And, and so basically I take what my doctor tells me to take. I take lysine, but I don't tell you to take it. I had a cold sore five years ago and the doctor said, hey, you know, if you take lysine, you'll never get another one. I never got another, but I don't recommend to my clients or people in general. I asked my doctor what to take because he knows, it, at least my doctor does, because he's, he's, he's the head of lifestyle medicine at Loma Linda, but, yeah. but I would not tell people what they need because also there's blood tests, by the way, that to see if you're deficient in B12, in vitamin D. So why supplement something that you don't even know what you're supplementing, right? And, and if, if I ever took that uh, fatty acid profile and I was deficient, I would either start eating nuts and seeds or I would take a, a vegan DHA, but I think you should get a baseline blood test and, and, then, and then have your doctor decide which supplements are right for you and then take a pure one. Actually, I take the brand I take is called Pure, Pure Encapsulations and at the proper dose. But these are things I think best that you should ask your doctor with the exception of B12, which is non-negotiable for any plant, exclusively plant eater. 
Yeah, exactly. And meat eaters, because I think it's shown, the research shows that 80% of the uh, North America does suffer from a B12 deficiency, even though 95 to 98% of them are all eating meat. So it really does show that this meat, it's because our food is too um, clean, I'll say. Right. It's not grown in good soils, and then it's washed multiple times before it gets to you. Absolutely. So that's good. Soil. Yeah. And you did touch on one thing too, is that you have a doctor that understands lifestyle medicine. So for everybody listening out there, if you have a doctor who's going to tell you, you don't need to take B12 and you shouldn't be plant-based or you shouldn't be vegan. Um, it's not healthy to be these things. Cause I do have, you know, the doctors and my clients will tell them that. Um, meanwhile, they just prescribe another medication. You, you can fire your doctor, fire your doctor and get a lifestyle medicine doctor. Absolutely. Yeah. Chef AJ, thank you so much. It has been the greatest pleasure chatting with you and we will share this podcast with you. And so you can share it with your audience as well. And it has been a pleasure. Thank you. Oh my God, the pleasure was all mine. I'd be happy to share it. Thank you for your work. Amazing. Thank you for yours. So welcome back everyone. Wasn't that everything I promised it would be? Chef AJ is incredible. One of the most knowledgeable people that I know in the food world, in the plant-based world, and in the weight loss world. I know many of you might have been following Jenny Craig or some of these other diets, and you've seen that they're just yo-yo diets. We know the celebrities that have been following them, and they just gain weight, lose weight, gain weight, lose weight. And the foods are all based on packaged products. I know that Jenny Craig is attempting to look at more plant-based whole foods, but at the end of the day, it's still not even close to what we need to be doing to live a truly optimal life. Now, if you know me and you know Richer Health and the work we do at The Green Mustache, you know that weight loss is not our number one goal. It is just something that happens as a result of engaging in healthy eating behaviors. But I know I could make millions if I really just focused on it being weight loss for sure. But ultimately, we are in the business of helping people reverse their chronic diseases because those diseases are so painful. And we know that obesity and being overweight contributes to those diseases as well. But I know from experience, my clients, they often will make the changes when they hit rock bottom. They often will make the changes when they get that diagnosis. They often will make the changes, not just in their own bodies, in their own lives, but they'll make the changes on behalf of their families. And when they get the results that they've reversed their diabetes, their heart disease, their infertility, their autoimmune disorder, and more, all of a sudden that's when their neighbors perk up, their family members perk up, and they become super interested in learning what that person did to get healthy because you not only feel healthy, but you are glowing. So if you know of anybody that has a chronic degenerative disease right now, it might be you, it might be a family member, get them to reach out to us at richerhealth or at nicoletterichet.com because we can get them understanding the food is medicine today. We can get them understanding the real definition of real food so that they can get started in turning their health around today and realizing the best version of themselves. Do not wait a moment longer. Do not wait till you hit rock bottom. You do not have to wait there, wait for that moment because there's so much science out there. There's so many resources out there, so much knowledge out there, and there's so much support. And we are on your side. We've got your back. So just reach out to us so we can help you because we want to crush this chronic disease epidemic. And one way that we're doing that is through our 22 million strong campaign where 
I am going to be running and cycling across Canada starting June 1st, 2021. And I'm doing that to raise awareness about food as medicine, but not only that. This is reconciliation work that we're doing through our charity and through our companies and through my PhD research, where I want to show that traditional food systems those food systems before colonization are the food systems we can still engage in. We have so many farmers that are working hard to get us back to that. And we can do that in this current day age. And 22 million is all about helping people remember that we've had the answer to this chronic disease epidemic. It is through the food that we put in our mouth. So you can follow our journey at 22millionstrong.ca all the links are going to be are going to be below in the show notes and you can support in multiple different ways you can volunteer you can run and cycle with me across different parts of canada or do the whole thing with me you can donate every dollar helps especially because we're in the middle of covid and all of our businesses just like everybody else's business across the planet are definitely struggling, but we are still keeping our doors open because this is the work that I am born to do. And so I will not let our, our doors close. And so every dollar counts. So donating, but ultimately sponsoring as well. So if you know of an organization that's out there that has a social responsibility, a corporate social responsibility mandate and mission, and they want to enhance that further, we can work with them to co-create a partnership opportunity where we help our sponsors audience learn that food is medicine, but we also get our audience to understand the corporate social responsibility mission of that sponsor as well. So it's a win-win for everybody. So please reach out to us and let us know what company is out there that we can align ourselves with. They need to be socially minded, environmentally minded. They need to be a business for the people, somebody who puts people before profits for sure. And we want to work with them. So definitely connect them to us or connect us to them. We would be forever grateful. But follow us on this Eat Real TL podcast. We have new episodes coming out every single week and follow us in the links below. Thanks for being here today. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to Chef AJ for being on our show. Bye for now.